Welcome to Sound and Vision, conversations with contemporary artists and musicians about the creative process. Here's the host of Sound and Vision, Brian Alfred. Sound and Vision is supported by Golden Artist Colors, manufacturing in upstate New York, Golden Acrylics, Williamsburg Oils, and more recently, Core Watercolors, an employee-owned company committed to producing the highest quality materials while maintaining a culture of stewardship and community involvement. I've been using Golden for over 20 years, and I swear by it. For more information about Golden Artist Colors, visit them online at goldenpaints.com. Casey Zavaglia received her BFA from Wheaton College and her MFA in painting from Washington University. In 2001, she began incorporating wool into her practice and embarked on a series of hand-embroidered portraits of family. Casey mounted her first museum solo at the Contemporary Art Museum, St. Louis, in 2014. She's represented by Lions Weir Gallery in New York City and William Shearburn Gallery in St. Louis. I spoke with Casey from her place in St. Louis. Here's our conversation. The things we do for audio. And exactly. You have, you have kids, right? I do. I have four kids. I have one who's going back to be a sophomore in college. And wow. I'll have a senior in high school, a freshman in high school, and a sixth grader. Man. So. That's, the, that's like the spectrum of situations there as a parent of one. Exactly. It, that's, that's daunting. Yeah. Especially now with all this stuff. Like what it, what's happening it's been kind of like my husband read something and it said you're kind of like a cruise director like you're in charge of snacks and you know meals and yeah just like ev- more than a normal because my studio is in my house so I'm used yeah. to being once everyone's gone to school you know I'm kind of starting my day so now it's a yeah it's like more people in the house and people coming in and out of the studio and but also really great for more family time and meals and cooking and so yeah, yeah that's been really great how about less you co- less like, commuting I imagine too because yeah I imagine with four like, at those different levels you, you've got a lot of activities that you're trying to keep track of I mean right what? so it was <laughs> like really I got like several hours a day back so where my studio day would normally start at like nine and end about two thirty. Yeah. For carpool, it kind of switched from like 12 to 5, you know, something like that. But um, yeah, It balances in a way, yeah, a weird way, exactly. right? I mean, yeah. some things are way harder, some things are a lot easier. Yeah, and, and I never, they, I've, I've never thought of it as like having kids, I really feel like it has informed my work and led me to even the work that I'm making today. So even though I may not see it at the time, I'm kind of excited to think like how has this how will this play into my work by having like all of my kids home and yeah just well, having you a do, different life don't you use like your family as subjects in a lot of your work I do yeah that's like the primary focus and my last show that I had was the first time I branched outside of my family I had done like a few friends but it mainly focused on my family um and I grew up in Australia so 
I lived there from when I was one to 13, even though I'm not Australian. So it was kind of like this part of my life that even though these friends, or I didn't have any family over there, kind of the term family and how friends become your family. Um, And, you know, you're kind of just waiting, like who invites you over for Christmas dinner (laughs) because you don't have family. So it was this group of people that I'd never documented. Um, And so I went over there and took pictures and documented them and their kids and kind of the broader spectrum. So, but I really feel like because of this whole stay-at-home order and quarantine it's made me think more about my own family and not kind of branching out into more friends but really hunkering down and really making that my focus even more yeah and well and out of convenience too it's like we don't see anyone right exactly (laughs) Do do you work from life as far as like the starting point for everything i i take my own photos yeah um so so, so that's yeah. in life taking the photos. It's right. not like you're sourcing images. Yeah, no, just like taking photos. And a lot of times I'll just have the people wear whatever they feel comfortable wearing, maybe, you know, bring two different options. Yeah. And I, I don't feel like super confident as a photographer. So I feel like the first 75, I'm really just, just clicking, <laughs> you know, yeah. then I might see something And then I'll have them repeat that pose multiple times with just like slight little shifts. Um, And usually I would say like the one that I pick is in the last maybe 30 shots. But I need a good 150 to get one good Man, that's a lot. Yeah, it's a lot. That's (laughs) why I said I'm not that great. I, you know, yeah, they're very Well, I've done that. Yeah, I've done it a couple times, only a couple times in my whole painting career of where Mm -hmm. I painted. Well, actually, I, I did a few but um, where I was taking the photographs for the piece that I was going to make of that person. And right. I remember one time it was a commission for like this woman who was a model. She was like, you know, all dressed. I mean, it, she brought the out, you know, everything right. was way more glam than the ones that I done, did of artist friends who just walked over. I took a picture and then I just, <laughs> you know, right. I'm not going as accurately from life as a photograph would really need, you know, right. it's more of right. just like giving me the shell of the person. But with her, it was like, i I just felt a. I felt like a fraud because I'm not a photographer, and then B. I it's felt like so this, much pressure. So much pressure, and she's a pro at having her photo taken. So right. I'm sitting there taking a ton, even though I'm like, I only need one of these, you know. And I'm taking all these photographs because I feel like I have to make this, you know, this production of, of like being a photographer or something, which I'm totally not. Right. Even though a lot of my work is based on my travels in photography, you know. It's a weird relationship. It's almost like it's just an excuse for what you want to do with the paint or with, you know, whatever else you're doing, really. Right. And I know what I'm looking for. So when I see it, as far as like the lighting or something, like I get super excited. And I know for me, I really need a dark side and a light side to the face. Like it doesn't have to be super harsh, you know, Caravaggio or something like that. But it really gives me more opportunity as far as like, there's only so many colors of thread you can stitch in. Um, And I'm thinking about this approach when it comes to embroidery, but um, so it allows me to do much more as far as color wise than if it was all kind of like a flesh tone. Um, And I really love those areas the best kind of like when you walk into a dark room and your eyes have to adjust. I love those areas in any portrait really where, you know, it's not just like a dark, like a, you know, brown or a black, but to like 
really stare at it and see that, oh, that's made up of blues and purples and, you know, yeah, all those colors that read as a dark from a distance. So that's mainly why I use like the, yeah, such a strong light source. Could you hypothetically, and I I apologize for knowing nothing about embroidery or fabric or, you know, Mm -hmm. it's, it's not my area of expertise, but could you hypothetically dye yarns or dye in, in subtle tones that could give you a sort of local palette that's much more broad than what you buy at the store? You could, but they're like, to me, that is like next level. Like I wouldn't have the patience to like dye my own wool. So it really, and I know artists, like there's a artist out in LA, Channing Hansen, and oh, he yeah. dyes his wool. And I'm like, that's amazing. Um, but for me, it was really about like, just seeing like, okay, here's, the palette that I have available. And at first it actually was really frustrating because I was trained as a painter and so I was used to mixing whatever color I wanted. So it became this kind of pointless system of, at first it was just like stabbing in the dark, but like I'm gonna like lay down a blue and then I'm gonna dot it with another color and then, you know, put some little lavender stitches or green. Um, And the initial ones were very abstract. And I kind of like that freeness. Like, I feel like I'm always trying to get back to that. Um, But yeah, it was really about here's your existing palette and how do you mix those and layer those to create a color that doesn't exist. Because even like in uh, like the dark colors, there's one black. And then after that one black, there's like a dark brown and a dark blue, but there's not like 10 shades of black. Um, So So you have to do that color separation thing basically and get those effects through the combination of colors i mean i do a similar thing with collage it's like i could paint all the paper different colors and then cut it out but i just i kind of like the limitations and trying to find that dynamic because it is different than painting which is the joy of it in a way or what makes it compelling you know and I think what I loved too was when I made a return to painting a couple years ago I loved seeing how sewing for so many years then influenced my painting so even though I was back to a situation where I could just mix whatever I saw I found myself kind of dotting those areas and I was like wait why am I doing this and so (laughs) instead of like okay I'm gonna go back to brushstrokes I thought I'm gonna take that and actually be really intentional about these dots so I started using like a stencil method of vinyl with the printed dots and scraping the paint over it and removing them. So they weren't just dots, but they were these like color specific, perfect dots that were like a little bit raised off of the surface. Um, and that was super time consuming as, as your work yeah. is too, yeah. but also so satisfying, like to rip that tape off and the, the vinyl off. So I've really let the years of stitching kind of inform my painting. And I love like, yeah, seeing those, how that yeah. plays into my work now. It's going to be impossible for this conversation to not get processy. <laughs> I know. <laughs> you're just, I it's one of right. those things. It'd be funny though if we didn't and we just talked about, you know, music the whole time and how many people would be sending me messages like, you didn't talk about that process, which is, I mean, I'm sure like, how is that from your angle of, you know, it's a very specific kind of labor intensive process that takes a long amount of time and it's so integral into the reading of the work and I imagine like you know I always think of it as like the sliding scale you know of of like process and imagery and the conceptual side is woven through that and you know 
some people's work when you walk up to it you just kind of see the image first you think about the image and then you're like oh they kind of use that method or whatever or you know there's that going on and then other people you know you just immediately see the process of the painting and it just jumps out like you know some people work really really thick you know mm-hmm. and, and you just or especially with abstraction too it's like just, you notice that process first I in yours it's like you can't ignore that process like it's hard to get past that and then the image is seen through the vehicle of that process and it means something different in that sense I think <clears throat> actually I think the process is hidden at first they look like paintings and so if you're into portraits or figurative painting you might walk closer and I'm always interested in keeping the process and the portrait like totally competing for your attention so um yeah it isn't obvious at first um even like I just recently did a giant embroidery of the back of an embroidery I'd done a couple years ago Mm-hmm. And I I just felt like I'm old enough, I'm brave enough, I'm going to put as much craft and my love of craft into this piece. Um, so I started thinking a lot about the dot and um, making pom-poms to, that were color-specific for a specific area. But from a distance, I didn't want you to think it was a pom-pom. So some right. of them were like four inches in diameter, And if I put it on there and walked across the room and I couldn't see it, I was so excited. Like, so it could stay. But if I could see this round pom-pom, I'd have to move it. So, and I think I'm trying to do that because I I know that, like, not everyone's into figurative work. There's a lot of people that aren't into craft-based work. I mean, I don't even refer to myself as a fiber artist. Clearly, I am. (laughs) Like... (laughs) But I feel like even though that title is changing, there's still like, I just want to be an artist that's using embroidery and paint. And so I respect it. But I also feel like there's a lot of people who, if you say I'm a fiber artist, they wouldn't be interested in your in my work. So I kind of want to trick them a little bit. Um, What I found is that lighting is actually key to whether you get what it is or you don't. So, you know, I've had works shown in art fairs with, I mean, art fair lighting is terrible, but if you shine a direct light on my embroidered pieces, everything is blasted with light and it, like a painting will reflect the light, but this kind of just, I don't know, it highlights it, it shows the texture and you get no subtlety of color. So they really have to be lit in kind of a natural daylight um, nothing harsh, like diffused kind of light to really trick you and be part of the illusion of, oh, this is a painting. Oh, no, it's not a painting. And I've even had some people get really close and they, they can't tell what it is. And right. I love that. Yeah, um, yeah. So, yeah, the, pro- the process is really important to me to just well, like add, add a layer of interest to someone who, yeah, it doesn't even like portraits or figurative work but is interested in technique yeah i mean it's definitely i mean your you know technical proficiency comes across whether it's the painting the drawing or you know those kind of like embroideries that you do that are that look like a drawing you know Mm -hmm. more sketch like Mm -hmm. or throughout the different ways that you work so like as a kid were you a good drawer were you always were you the person in art you seem like the person in art class who could make someone look like someone and everyone thought (laughs) (laughs) they're an artist (laughs) 
<laughs> well, I, I didn't have the cool factor. I still don't feel like I'm, I'm, I don't have the cool factor at all. But um, I loved craft, I would say, more than like actual drawing paint when I was really little. So anything that was like involved a glue gun or making or um, sewing, um, that was my happy place and like imaginative play. Um, and then when I got into the upper grades, I don't even think I really had a medium that I preferred, but it was definitely, I was into, you know, copying and realistic drawing, whether it was portraits or landscapes or something like that, copying stuff from books. Um, but I always knew I wanted to be an artist. And I recently heard this quote by Walton Ford, where he said, if you ever get stuck as an artist, you should make the thing that got you excited about making art as a kid. And I was like, yes, like, that's exactly where I am. I mean, there's specific pieces that I have from my childhood that my mom saved. One was an embroidery, which inspired this embroidered work that I make. One was like a torn um, paper work that kind of looked like a stained glass window. Mm-hmm. And another one was like a coloring page that I applied, colored it in and then applied glue and glitter and then shook off the glitter. And those three pieces to me, like t- I can find the influence of all three of those things in the work that I've made up until this point. Um, and I think that that kind of advice just gives me the confidence that like this big embroidery piece I did, I was like, I'm going to put it all in. Like I'm going to get paint married next to embroidery. I'm going to do the things that they say you're not supposed to do, like attach pom-poms and sequins. And, um, but at the end of the day, I mean, even those decisions were really difficult to make. I couldn't commit to the pom-poms. I just tacked them up there for months. And then it was really about believing that this does work, that this could be modern. This could be contemporary. Um, And I love with this particular medium, and it's why I'm kind of not sick of it, is that it's a medium that you can relate to. Like without touching it, you know what that medium feels like. And I love kind of playing with that. That's a, it's such a beautiful metaphor that the looking back to as a kid, it's kind of a metaphor for life too. It's like everything you've wanted to do as a child, like, you know, the the key to that of what you do early on is what you're trying to achieve later on. You know what I mean? Of like finding that play or that, you know, sense of wonder. I feel like we're, right. and it's also depressing in a way because it's like you're <laughs> always trying to chase what you had as a kid. Like you right. always want that feeling and like you're trying to get back to, you know, it's like a Matissean thing. It's like you're trying to get to lose the structure, to lose the stress and all that worry and and just get back to just like, you know, exploring and developing and, you right, know, right. something beautiful about that stage of the mind. It, you know, it's like, did you ever see that movie Six Degrees of Separation? No. Uh-uh. They talk about, it's like an art teacher talking about how, I think it was like first grade, it's too naive, third grade, they're too self-conscious, but in second grade, they're like all making Matisse's. It's like this perfect that's sweet funny. spot of like, yeah. you know, just that's the brain is just at the right place at the right time for making that kind of stuff. Right, right. So, well, how did you, if you always knew you were going to be an artist, I mean, were your parents creative? Was it something that they were supportive of? Yeah, they were creative. My dad was, he was like an industrial arts teacher uh, when they moved to Australia. So he taught like woodworking, uh, leather work. He was like, 
yeah, really good with his hands, building, making anything. And my how did mom that gig, was... How did that gig happen? Like, how did he find that? This so is pre-internet, I imagine. <laughs> yeah, he read an ad in the paper, and Australia needed certain teachers for, like, English, industrial arts. They had a list of teachers that they needed. So this was in 1972. Yeah. And um, you could... I guess you wrote to them or I don't know if you called them and said like we're interested so from what I heard they pay they would pay your way over there and give you money to kind of set up and then if you didn't like it they would pay your way back so they were kind of hippie-ish and just thought I don't think yeah maybe it was like a rough time for jobs and my dad was like we should go over there and try it so they went for like five or six years and I mean it was a big culture shock to go there in 1973 I'm sure. Um, And then they were like, I don't know. We miss America. We'll come back. And I think they came back for like nine months and just like, what did we do? And then they went back to Australia till I was 13. (laughs) That's a long back and forth. Hopefully they were moving everything. Yeah, no, they were. Yeah. So, um, yeah, so they were creative. My mom was a writer and I mean, she was a school teacher, but did a lot of writing for herself and um, also did a lot of you know, handicrafts like sewing and cross stitch and that type of stuff. Yeah. So you had a a good environment for that. What was it? What are your memories of Australia? Did it shape your, you know, kind of like your formative aesthetic mind in a way? I totally think it did. I mean, because that's like the sights and sounds of my childhood. So, you know, I don't have anything to compare it to as far as like, you know, someone that grew up in the States or what town they grew up in the States. So for me, when I go back, I'm like, oh, it's probably not as great as I remember. And then I get back and I'm like, oh, dang, it's better. Like, it's better <laughs> than I remember. It's just like much more laid back. Um, and in 1972, like my parents like chose not to have a television. I don't even know if color television was around, like maybe had just come out in, over there. So it was, yeah, very unique place. Um, and in the 70s, you know, like in the state. I mean, you could pretty kids could do what they want. It's just very free. And I think the fact that we didn't have a television, I attribute to a lot of like kind of directing me into like prolonging, like imaginative play and making, um, I definitely see the link in those two things. Lots of outdoor time. Oh, we could go down that road of, uh, (laughs) you know, nowadays how creativity is affected by the lack of, boredom and imagination right. time right but I don't want to beat the drum of how old I'm getting so I won't we, wait we how won't old are you how old are you <laughs> I'm 45 about to be 46 oh, okay no shame I'm 49 so we're close um, I thought we were about the same age yeah 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 but I mean we grew up in a in a time when I would imagine it was like that for you too where every day when you weren't in school you just went out you exactly. just went out and just found something to do. It's not like you had this amazing box and screens that would play the world to you as you just sit in your chair, you know? Right. I don't want to show you my son's setup right behind <laughs> here right now, but let's say there's a lot of screens in front of me. You know what I mean? We didn't have that. We just had, right. you know, just stuff to do outside. You just right. got busy. But then again, under our current situation, thank goodness we have connectivity. Otherwise, I think kids would be going crazy right now you know just feeling completely disconnected so you know right and I actually like I mean we've got like iPads and stuff like that but I having three boys I 
like purposely chose to hold off on like the PS4 and those yeah. type of things. Right. But like this Christmas was the first Christmas where I was like, okay, let's do it. You know, they're old okay. enough. Hopefully the, the addiction, we've, we've skipped over this level of addiction. But my husband was like, what if we hadn't done that? And like quarantine's here. Like, so it right. actually was kind of, yeah, good timing to get it right now. And they could talk to their friends while they play or however yeah, it works. <laughs> I wonder about that because, um, like, if you keep something from someone, I feel like later on in life, it becomes something that you really obsess over. You know right. what I mean? Yeah. Like, my, my son never watched, like, uh, epic movies or any violence or anything. We kept it. It was all kind of like, you know very non-challenging television let's say educational and you know like that kind of thing right and he hit a point to where you know socially you need to let your kids like engage in things their friends are doing so when he saw lord of the rings and star wars and stuff like that now it's just like it blew his mind and i remember growing up my mom worked for a woman who owned a candy store so our house was always filled with candy. Like there would be bowls of just candy. And my friends would come over and be like, this is insane. Look at all this candy. They would just be like holding their shirt and stuffing in it, you know, like right, going right. crazy. And at that point I had OD'd on candy. Like I didn't care. I didn't right. want it. I still to this day could care less about candy. I don't, it doesn't do anything for me. I don't have a sweet tooth. And uh, I think that's because it was just around casually. Whereas if it right. were kept from me, you know, I think... I probably would have wanted it a lot more right. to this day. I don't know. Yeah. We'll see yeah, if your if that. your sons are like game yeah. developers and like, you know, <laughs> exactly. tech giants and like doing all this stuff. It's it's a difficult it's thing, you know, as far as technology. It's like how No, much? I agree. I definitely agree. Yeah. Does does it enter your work at all as far I mean, I guess if you're taking photos of your subjects and, you know, you're you're not really using it that much in your work, are you? I'm like pretty old school. Like yeah. I know I was doing something one day I'd printed off an image and I was like, I don't know, spray painting the backgrounds and like messing with stencils. And my daughter just like walked by, I think she was maybe like 14 and she was like, you know, there's an app for that. And I was like, <laughs> what? <laughs> like, <laughs> so I feel still like very old school, like, yeah, I'll use like an overhead projector for stuff. Like my bulb oh, nice. is still yeah. it's still working. I'm like, what am I gonna do when that bulb blows? But <laughs> yeah, <eBay>. I feel, <laughs> <laughs> I feel like it. I'm I'm very still old school. So I I think it's a great as far as like productivity as an artist too. It's so like useful in that sense mm-hmm. because I feel like anytime something is. Um, injected into the studio out of convenience or something that's going to make your life easier if it's not really tied to the process of what you're doing it might make one thing easier but it complicates four thousand other things you know what i mean and then you just get lost in this rabbit hole of stuff you need to do and it's for me it's tricky because i use technology in a lot of my work and i try to use it as a tool and not as the thing that's just going to keep me busy Right. I feel like I don't want to be overwhelmed. So like my daughter's been taking a class at college where they were learning Photoshop. So since she's been home, I was like, oh, instead of painting this background seven times till I get the right color, can you just like throw it in and just give me some options, you know? And my husband's like, we should get you Photoshop. You could do so many things. And I'm like, see, that overwhelms me. Like, I feel like you do have to devote time to Photoshop to learn everything that can do. And that 
actually doesn't excite me. Like, I just want to tell someone, can you just like, here's kind of what I'm thinking. Because I feel like I would be paralyzed with so many options or too reliant on what the computer could spit out and then stay faithful to that. Right. So I have the solution to that, actually. What? With I've done it through painstaking research. Just be really bad at it like I am and just use it True. only for the things that you want. Right, right. <laughs> so every computer program, I never took a class in my life and mm-hmm. I, it's a huge part of what I do. And every program I use, it's like the, the program use the way I want to use it. So right, it's only right. the tools and only the functions that serve me and my work. Right. And like sometimes when I'm teaching things, it's definitely through the, oh, I guess it's like that for painting too, isn't it really? Because like I learned how to paint a certain way and I, you know, I learned oil painting and a more traditional still life glazing and all that, but not, you know, ad nauseum. Like I wasn't like Rembrandt or anything. And I exactly. mostly forgot a lot of that technique through working because I work with acrylic and water-based media. But it's like, there's so many things paint can do. And we right. don't look at the paint and say, well, I can't pick up that paint box because I need to learn it all. You know what I mean? Right. There's so many things you could do with it. But I think right. we as artists are so good at just taking the toolbox and like doing what we want to do with it, you know, or what feels right. right. And just hopefully owning that and not feeling self-conscious about it and feeling like, no, that's just my voice, you know, is right. how I play in the sandbox. Like and what I build is it's just my voice. But it is, with a computer, it's way more tempting because it's so easy. It's so easy to click that button right. and create this other giant thing. Like when I'm animating, there's so many effects I can do. And as I get better at it, I'm like, oh, I could do that. you know. And it's always the pushing back. Right, right. Yeah, I must say it was really helpful when she just like blasted those colors because that is my process. I would just keep oh, painting yeah. it. And I would think, well, when I sand this back... It's going to show some of those colors, so I don't mind. I don't mind this way of working, but right. yeah, it was kind of nice to like my thickness was built up, and I just needed that final color. So it was really nice that she helped me out. But I feel like what I was saying about my photography, I don't think I'm the best. Um, and I've had photographer friends say like, you know, there's a way you can make that le- less yellow, and I'm like, right. well, maybe that's that's part of my process. Like, I like working totally. from really yellow. <laughs> Yeah. Hot photos. So. No, I'm sure someone said to like Joey Ramone, you know, you could tune your guitar perfectly if you want to. (laughs) (laughs) Or you could sing in key or whatever it was. You know what I mean? Right. Right. But that's what makes it it, you know? And I think uh, it it takes a while to, uh, not everyone does, but I think it takes a while to get comfortable in what you don't know and what you feel like, you know. But saying that, I mean, you clearly have a lot of skill and a lot of proficiency and you know and when I do see it seems like when I see some of your work where you're maybe in the paintings you're able to loosen up more and do more like collage like effects or things like the image isn't quite so like crisp and tight and it's a little Mm -hmm. looser or like when you flip things to the back and you see Mm -hmm. that sort of abstraction that um you know you have those ways of working I mean is that something do you constantly feel that push and pull between how much do you go into something that's, you know, tighter and, and more kind of like accomplished as far as the technical side of it. And then how much you just loosen up and get free with it. I guess you were alluding to that before a bit. Yeah. I just, I want to get crazy. And I feel like this work has made me like 
obsessive compulsive. Like I, <laughs> I look at other people's work and you can tell the sheer amount of time that it takes to do it. And I just think to myself, how do they have the patience? Yeah. And then someone will be like, you sew a portrait for it. What well, started out as like six months, but now my speed's gotten better. So I can do one in like six weeks. So, but still it's just like, I guess you have tolerance for different levels of patience for things. Um, but you know, I'll see like a Jenny, I don't know if you say Seville or Savile work. Um, and I love her work. And I'm just like, oh, I show, I saw her show at Gagosian and, you know, these giant canvases. Yeah. And you can tell she starts out on the floor and she might just smear the paint around. And I'm like, I want that, but I don't know how to get that in what I do. Because I'm working from a source photo and I feel very faithful to that. And I find it hard to break away and just make up a color in my head, like... The color I'm putting down is a version of what I'm seeing, but yeah, I just, I'm constantly thinking how to loosen it up and maybe don't use as much time, but still have the impact that I want. Right. I think that's, it's always an epic struggle of like, you always want a little bit of what's unlike your natural sensibility or what really feels like you, like you pine for that, you know, like anytime I see someone who's working um, in a, a really inventive way where they're not using any photography or it's just purely like almost like surreally invented landscapes and stuff. I'm like, oh, that's, you know, so great. And like, I wish I could just, you know, be more right. free as far as that's concerned. But I think the language that I think in naturally like tightens things up a bit. You know, it's a little less explosive or, you know, so I, it's difficult. You always want what you don't lean in towards I think but then yeah, often that's right. why people love your work is because <laughs> that is really your intrinsic voice and something that you know you feel really um, resonates with the way that you think about imagery mm-hmm. and so it's it's this tricky thing you know it's like the the like I was saying it's like the punk rocker who wants to be a little more melodic or the the poppy person who wants a little more edge it's you right. always want it's like that finding that balance I think I think like to this this last large embroidery that I made and I'm on I'm working on another one that's like six feet square so I roll it out in sections like yeah and then kind of like start putting it up the wall but I can't see what's below um and even though like I mean I was naive I was like I could bust this out in like six months and then it like I think it took almost a year to make the last one. Oh my gosh. But I love the fact, cause I'd done paintings of that scale of this verso image. that's on the back of my embroidery. Yeah. Um, and I felt like so much love was given to that middle area where I was just standing, but the tippy yeah. top didn't get as much love and the bottom for real got little to no love. It's just, <laughs> it's awkward to physically get down there. Yeah. Um, and so I love the fact that literally every square inch of these giant pieces receive the same amount of love because you're you just don't get that in paintings um so i had some like tiny like bead size red sequins that i sewed on this one area like no one but an art handler will ever see that (laughs) right right but i loved it because it literally like everything had love you know every inch of it so even though it's super time consuming i feel like you know, I go to the studio and I, I don't have to put a lot of thought into what's on for that day, but I just like, it's just that like methodical, like I'm just going to work and like in a couple months I'll have something kind of like a Chuck Close approach, I guess. Um, even though it's like not gridded off, but 
Yeah. So it's very, even though the, it's a long haul, um, once I'm into it, I kind of know the road I'm on to finish the piece. Um, I know with that last big embroidery that I did, there was so many decisions, like it didn't go the way I wanted. I make some mistakes before I started. And I was talking to another artist friend and I was like, it's so hard. Like, how can it be that difficult to decide do I want to put a pom-pom on it or not? (laughs) And he was like, you know, as artists, there's very few opportunities where we get the opportunity to wrestle with our work. But that's where the good stuff is. Yeah. And I was like, you're so right. Because when I know how it's going to, it's easy, comes easy. Okay, now I'm going to do it. Today I'll do the eyes, tomorrow I'll do the nose, and then I'll fill in. You know, um, that's not as exciting as the hard stuff where you're just at the end of the day, you're like, this sucks. Like, I'm not going to be able to resurrect that. But I feel like when you're in that place, it's actually really exciting because it means you're just about to turn the corner and find how to fix it. But if you don't get to the dips, you know, you will never turn that corner. So it's a tension filled, but like super exciting place that we don't always get to sit in, which is nice. Yeah. And I think it's conditional. Like what you're talking about is very associated with that kind of process. Cause I do that too, where I kind of know what the image is going to be at the end. So it's like my choices are kind of mapped out in a way. And there's like these micro choices that seem really important to me that will are huge shifts, but to the viewer, maybe not so much, you know, where there's other artists who have no idea it's carte blanche and they're like, it's all the whole process is this exploration of who knows what, you know, and right. And, and that's probably difficult in the sense that you're constantly having to vent and you, you know, whereas when you kind of know what that image is at the end, it's difficult because it's almost like you know where the finish line is and it's like, oh my God, I have to run all the way up that mountain. Yeah. Right. And you can lose excitement. Yeah. Yeah. I, I heard a talk with, um, with Mark Bradford and he said that. He was like, when you make art for like such a long time or for so many years, you may not see that there's shifts, but it's those tiny shifts in the work that add up to what you're doing now and they're so important but like the general person looking at your work may not see it but you see it and see how those are like building blocks to build on to the next part of your work yeah that that circumstance has made me much less judgy i mean i'm not that judgy anyways but much much less judgy of artists who where like maybe 20 years ago I would have said oh that artist is just beating a dead horse and making the same painting over (laughs) and over again but you know you can't you don't know those little changes you know you don't know those little kind of and plus the the commitment to it you know what I mean I think as you get older you kind of appreciate that more you know like someone like Alex Katz is like you could look at an Alex Katz painting today versus you know 20 years ago and say well they're not that different you know what I mean but there's something to be said for that dedication of what he's doing and the speed which he makes them and the sort of directness of it you know it's I don't know it's it's the that's the beauty I think of artists there's all these different ways that people are making it different time frames and different commitment levels to change and to right and to sticking to something you know it's it's right that's the beauty of it is that that diversity but no one wants to well, actually, nowadays, people do like to hear that. I think back in the day, everyone would just say, this is good, that's not good. Things have, I feel I think, like, up. I, like, I am glad you mentioned Alex, because I didn't give him the time of day in undergrad. Like, I would look at, you know, his stuff in the history books, and I was yeah. just like, nah. I was more focused on, like, Chuck Close and 
impressionist, like Van Gogh and stuff like that. Um, and then now that I'm older and I kind of revisited his work and I'm like, okay, first of all, you're a rock star. You're like 93. You Still are going. making art every single day. Like you're so cool. Um, but I just listened to a, a talk of um, an art historian. I think it was an art historian and a poet for a show he recently had and all the paintings were of grass. Mm-hmm. And they're very abstract looking, you know, just like what looks like a couple easy strokes across this giant canvas. And you can't tell, is he portraying the grass? Is he portraying the shadows on the grass or sunlight on the grass? Um, but the historian said, like, if you really look back at Alex's work, he started out doing these. He goes, dare I say, like, beautiful, delicate, little, they were tiny and then he made bigger works because he's influenced by cinema and that kind of look. But it was when he had his retrospective at the Met or something. I don't know if it was at the Met. I think that's what they said. That he was like, what do you do? You're Alex Katz. You've had this whole career. You're known for working big. He could go back to his studio and keep making the same work. Or he could just say, I'm going to take it so big, it's immersive. And, you know, I've seen his work at art fairs, and it's great because it's unlike a museum. You can get right up close to the work. People don't tell you to back away. And right. I'm like, it is immersive. And I love that word because, like, with the work that I'm doing, <clears throat> when you hear of embroidery, you instantly think of a hoop. You think of, like, a grandma. Right. Think of something that is the scale of your lap or something you can hold in your hands. And so taking my embroideries large, I mean, I could maybe get a machine to make it large. And I think that's a whole different read. But I was like, that's what I want. I want these to be immersive. I want you to, even though you can't touch it, you know what that feels like or that tension of you want to touch it so bad. Yeah. Um, and so I love the fact that he's still innovating and challenging himself and not just sticking to you know, I think he's making the best work of his career. And yeah, yeah he's one of my favorites. He's got that kind of like um, hoaxi, you know, that that idea that like the older you get, you know, once you turn 90, that's when you start making your best work. Right, right. Because it's this lang- it's a developed language that it becomes in a way self-referential. You know, it's just like thinking about these different ways of making paintings of similar scenes and people but just tweaking it over and over time you get better and better it's there's something probably to be said for the confidence and the the visual lexicon that he has in relation to painting that comes through hopefully you know i'm always surprised too like when i see those you know your large scale portraits there's something i've always felt i mean we've all been in front of a chuck close you know or you know or like a giant alex katz that you know there's something about that scale that's just you know, amazing, like a Toba Kadori piece, you know, just that. I don't know that artist. <clears throat> she, I'm going to write that down. She uh, makes these large scale drawings, but the drawing's kind of small on the paper. The paper's the size of like a football mm-hmm. field. Oh, okay. Oh, but, okay. you know, it's it's this idea of like scale that, that envelops you. And I'm always surprised there's not more people making portraits that are just really large because something amazing happens when you see a head that's like three times the size of your body. <laughs> You know what I, I mean? Think, I think for me, I, I know like when I had, uh, they have this thing in St. Louis called the Great Rivers Biennial. So the Contemporary Art Museum every two years allows local artists to apply and kind of mount your first museum show. So I did that several years ago and 
you know, not that many people in St. Louis knew about my work. Um, I mean, that's because I feel like <clears throat> St. Louis really looks to New York. They look, they don't kind of look in their own backyard, which I think is probably what a lot of people in lots of cities across America feel if you're not on one of the coast or something. Um, now, wait, I lost my train of thought. What were you just saying? You were talking large, about the museum. Oh, right, right, the museum. So I wanted to do these large verso paintings just to return to painting. And at first, my idea was to just do the whole show of those. But because I wasn't really known in St. Louis, I feel like I needed to tell the story of how I got to this kind of abstracted image. So I had like some small gouache verso paintings, some small embroideries, some big embroideries, and then these two giant verso paintings. And the whole time I just felt like, oh, this is just Chuck Close's domain. Like there was a lot of intimidation, like, well, he's done it. Will it look like I'm just doing what he does? And like in the the talk they did at the museum, I mean, some people brought that up, like this is Chuck Close domain. And so I feel like a lot of people hesitate because maybe it would just seem that it's in that vein. I mean, I know even with what I do, I'll see giant portraits of someone like make the whole portrait out of like um, corks from wine bottles with different hues on the end. And I'm like, is that what I'm doing? Like, is that basically (laughs) the same thing? I'm making a giant head. Um, But I think one thing that kind of gave me the confidence to to actually do that in the end and I don't think the paintings were perfect if I had to do them uh, redo them again I would probably like change some things but I love that like what I'm trying to do with my embroideries the smaller ones is that you think it's a painting from a distance and then you discover it's something other and with these paintings I found myself painting so that it looked like an embroidery and then when you get close it was a painting so even like I started painting in a you know regular way and then I found like oh I wanted to like throw the paint kind of like a Jackson Pollock splat which I'm so against the splat like it's something (laughs) I would never want to include in my work but when I did it it instantly looked like a loose thread yeah so in those paintings there was some dots there was these you know kind of abstract expressionist marks and I really felt like they were an experiment for me that led to other work, but it really kind of mashed up all my loves from undergrad and grad school. So this like dot, which represented pop art, but also Aboriginal art, which I'd grown up seeing a lot of dot Aboriginal art, um, the abstract expressionist, and then also kind of a photorealistic. And then the scale was kind of close. And so it was kind of just like a homage to all those things in the end. Yeah, so. it's it's funny that that the comment that you made about kind of like Chuck Close territory or something. It's it's funny because no one really feels that way when they're making small portraits of people. It's not right. like oh, I'm kind of like the million other people who are doing <laughs> portraits. You know what I mean? Right. But or as I, soon as I it, use paint too, like something. Right. I mean, that's what's so great about paint is everyone can use the same medium or pencil or sculpture you're using the exact same medium but you can have thousands of different final works of art right and i think that's why i'm still not tired of this medium of embroidery is because i feel like i have not exhausted its potential i kind of think it just sat dormant for a while like tapestries and embroideries are like centuries old but kind of got 
kind of like put in this woman's work area. And yeah. I feel like now is such a great time where it's just art, you know, that that's not really the hierarchy anymore, but it just kind of lost some time with it really being a vital part of art making and contemporary art. And obviously there's people um, that have used it and women artists and stuff, but I just feel like it has so much potential because I've seen other people doing embroidered portraits like on Instagram. And I'm like, we're all using the same medium and they're all different, you know, some are looser, but they're like more impactful. Like they have a power about them. Some are, yeah, there's just, that's what I think is so great about. Yeah. But you're right. As far as like, I don't know why people feel like that. Um, well, it's because he's like the only person who made work, or not the only person, but he's a really iconic person who made yeah, they're work iconic. like that. And there's exactly. not a ton of people working at that scale. It's almost like if everyone's doing it, then no one really questions the, whose territory that is. But then if there's only one or two or three people who are really of note or in the public consciousness, right. then it's like, oh, well, that's something they do. You right. know what I mean? But no one's like, oh, well, you know. I can't make a small portrait painting because that's right. who blah, 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 you know, rattle off like 5,000 people and they do that too, you know? Well, so and almost, I think, yeah, we're also thinking like, well, where am I going to store that? What if no one buys it? Oh, yeah, you know, where am I going to store these? And those weren't his concerns. Like, and I think he definitely did that to get noticed. I yeah. mean, the scale was such a part of it. And I feel like I literally did those embroideries that big for the exact same reason because you can't um, ignore it right you can't ignore it it's in your face it's immersive and I feel like the reason I took it big was well it it was something I'd wanted to do for a really long time but I feel like unfortunately there's still in the art world it's like guys who stitch is like a total novelty in the art world like it blows the blue chip dealers brains like this is awesome (laughs) and I follow a lot of them and I love their work like one of my favorites is Brent Wadden and he does these tapestries that are abstract paintings Mm -hmm. but it's just a tapestry that's stretched and they're large scale love his work but I feel like women still get put in this like oh you're a woman doing woman's work tell us about that wait (laughs) you know are you you trying to say that sexism still exists in our society (laughs) Yes, I am. In, in the art world, no less. In the art world. <laughs> Goodness. Go so I feel, yeah, that, like that's got to be so frustrating. When I'm like, and I'm not bitter, I'm like, you know what? I'm just going to keep doing my thing. Like, right. I'm actually not ashamed that I'm a woman doing women's work. I embrace it. Um, but my story is oh, my grandma taught me to sew, my mom showed me how to sew. And that's the same story coming from the man, but we're not as novel because it's kind of expected or something like that. So I really wanted to take it large to be like, yeah, to, to get that notice, to get it out of what you would expect from embroidery. Cause even right. when I tell people I embroider portraits, it's a little bit like, <laughs> like it, they probably expect that, that circle, that little tiny, yes, like crafty. It, and if yes. you do it at your scale, you're negating the craft side of it. It's becoming, it's just, it just inherently like people other. are going to read it differently. Yeah. yeah. I mean, even like when I installed it at the gallery, uh, my dealer had seen it like in process, but you know, once it was installed in really great light, he was like kind of looking it over and he said, where'd you get those pom-poms from? 
And I was like, girl, I made those. <laughs> like, those are all hand. And like, pom poms actually take a really long time. I didn't realize when I signed up for it. You know, you could spend like, I could take, spend 45 minutes just making one. That's about yeah. three inches, you know, to give it the perfect haircut and then attach it. So, um, yeah, that's what I love. It's like, you think, oh, you just buy those or something. But I like it's kind of like lowbrow, but you're trying to elevate it too. So. Yeah, I think it's in in a way it's frustrating that, you know, one needs to make something outside of the, you know, uh, not I don't want to say a default, but just like a way that they want to make it to to make it stand apart from what the representation or the interpretation of it is or to to take it to, quote unquote, like another level or whatever. Like, mm-hmm. you know, I think of like Helen Frankenthaler making those big paintings like she, she I'm sure she was thinking, you know, like I'm making, I have to, I'm making these big paintings. Like I'm just as strong as a man making these paintings and I've got to be like, it's almost like, you know, those macho painters who are making those big paintings. It's like, well, I'm going to make those paintings too as a woman, you know, and it's going to be just as impactful. And to feel that, you know, through the materiality, you have to expand it out outside of its like, you know, understood language or what the default language of what people interpret it as is, Mm -hmm. you know, I guess in a way it's frustrating, but it's also an opportunity, you know, it's an also an opportunity to take this, what is, because it does have a traditional framework of, of being viewed in society. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Now I'm not talking necessarily about women's work or like the gender of it, but you know, the role that embroidery has in people's lives over the centuries has Mm -hmm. been different than, you know, sculpture or painting or something else so it's exciting to put it into that different context you know and to for people to see it in a way that you know goes past that sort of utilitarian traditional uh, way of viewing that material Mm -hmm. I imagine that's exciting for you for viewers to see it in that way yeah I think one thing that I think about too is like when I was a painter I pretty much just like used turpentine and paint I, like, yeah. I prided myself that I was a pretty good painter. Like in, in grad school, I was trying to be like Elizabeth Payton, you know, right. little thin washies. And like when I was in undergrad, I was trying to be Lucian Freud. So I feel like I could mix the color. I could move it around. But I didn't understand the chemical, like what goes with what. So like I had some paintings from grad school that didn't dry for years. Like <laughs> clearly I was doing something wrong. Um, and my daughter's recently been like doing some oil painting and she was asking me a technical question and I was just like, abort, abort. Like, and she was like, I'm going to, I'm going to call your friend. Like, you don't know the answer. I was like, you're right. Like the chemical makeup of like the medium and the ratio. I, I didn't have a clue about that. So I feel like I appreciate so much when people really understand the science of painting or yeah. like egg temper painting that blows my brain. Like, I don't know how that works so when I see an egg temper painting I don't understand what goes behind what's behind like the making of that but what I love about like this embroidery is you've probably done embroidery like at a camp when you're a kid or you've uh seen your grandma do it or you've at least worn a hat with a pom-pom yeah. So you've had that material in your hand and it has no pretension. <laughs> like right. it's not pretentious at all. It's so humble and lowbrow. Um, so I love that starting point. So anyone who doesn't even know a lot about art approaches it. They already have a starting point 
to get whatever they want from the work. Um, yeah, that's, so to me, that's, that's exciting. Yeah, it's refreshing and it's exciting to have something that everyone can relate to in that way. Totally. Yeah, I, I think, you know, working in water-based media, is, it's a similar thing. It's just water and, and paint, you know, there's not a lot of... Right. I mean, it can get complicated. You can add all sorts of stuff to the to the paint to make it, you know, nowadays. But it's funny, I kind of learned that traditional method of, you know, learning about linseed oil and stand oil and mixing and, <laughs> you know, the percentages and all that. And it's a little right. hazy at this point because I haven't really done it in <laughs> forever, you know, but... Um, but I do, when I think back to those times of like drying speeds and like adding those, you know, the sort of science behind mixing paint and all that and like right. rabbit skin glue and stuff like right. that is that, you know, when I used a computer to make work, when I'm animating or doing digital drawings and stuff, there's a similar kind of complexity to it that I think mm-hmm. maybe learning that stuff early on has helped my analytical brain understand a way of thinking about materiality, even though it's all virtual. Right. You know, mm-hmm. so it's kind of a, a weird connection between the past and the future. But but I do really love just adding water to paint and putting it on the canvas. It's so simple. I, th- I actually like my favorite is when people take stuff that's very simple and seems kind of dorky or boring. Yeah. That it wouldn't have a lot of potential and they do something magic with that medium. Like right. that just gets me so excited. Like I feel like it just proof that you have no excuses like you can't say even in this quarantine time well I can't get to the art store I don't have materials like I can't think of the artist's name but um he just takes paper and folds it and then he ends up with like the interior of an architectural building with like columns and perspective and it's just folded paper so there's no marks on it at all and I'm like see that gets me excited just to see what people can do like a friend of mine just did a bunch of cyanotype prints and he posted some of them, but I was like, that doesn't look like the kind of cyanotypes that I've seen before. And he was like, well, I didn't. Cause like first I did the print and then I took like, you know, like the monotype leftovers and then printed that on top of the cyanotype. And I was just like, I love that. Like I can't, I know it's pretty basic. You did it in your front yard, but I can't tell how you did that. Cause it's like magic. So yeah. There's something beautiful about that. Uh, mm-hmm. Do you know the artist Yuken Teruda? He does the. Uh, no. He takes like a a shop or like a paper bag from McDonald's or mm-hmm. like a Tiffany's like paper bag that, and then he cuts in the side of it like these trees and forests and and pokes them down in. So you look into the bag and there's like a nature landscape just made out of that garbage bag. Yeah, that's like. It's pretty yeah, amazing. So interesting. Yeah, when you can make something, you know, when you can completely transform something that's so overlooked into something right. you know, unique. I mean, Tom Friedman was kind of master of that, too. Exactly. You know, yeah, anyone who a- can just pick tennis tennis ball fuzz and, like, make something <laughs> magical, glowing triangle out of it is, is right. kind of a genius. He has a piece at the St. Louis Art Museum. I think he's actually from St. Louis. Um, and it's just a piece of paper folded, and the bottom is okay so he folded it in half and the bottom's just all crumpled and then he yeah. smoothed it out and framed it and it was like a ocean horizon i was just like Phew. i know right you know it's just so great yeah <laughs> it's 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 genius yeah he went to i uh, didn't he go to washington st louis i believe i i don't i 
I think he did. Yeah. But I definitely know he's from here. He was my, so. I don't know if a teacher, but when I was at Skowhegan, he was there and he oh, was okay. really great to talk to. Yeah. And uh, loved electronic music as did I. So we bonded <laughs> over that. <laughs> but yeah, some of his, I, I heard, you know, when I was in graduate school, he came to do a visiting artist talk to sculpture and he would talk about his process of just bringing in one object into the studio and looking at it. And saying, right. okay, what, what am I going to make out of this today? You know, it's, it's such a different process than what we were talking about. We're like, right. okay, I know the image. And, and, that, and that when I think about that, I think, oh, that's so cool. Like, I wish I could just do that. Like, right. you know, bring a New York or Times like, to the studio. And it's like, now I'm going to make this amazing piece out of it. But Right. And like Tara Donovan, you know, just sitting oh, yeah. with stuff in her studio, similar thing. And I've seen people that do similar work, like student work or something and I know they're heavily influenced by her, but I'm like, that just shows you what a master she is at what she does yeah. like, because it's hard. Like you can't just put a hundred school kid scissors in one area and make it look like a Tara Donovan. Like it's hard. Right. So there is, there is some amazing stuff that happens with artists like that who are able to transcend the material and yeah, make something that you could never expect. Yeah. And I think you have to be wired to do that mm-hmm. kind of work because other people can see it and be like oh I want to do something like that it's like yeah well you know what I mean like you, it's gonna right. you gotta commit to that like it's gotta right. be it's gotta work with your working method or else it's just gonna feel and we've all seen artwork that you just feel like the people are you know making it like it's just like I, I'm right. just gonna try to make something that looks kind of like that it just right. it's almost like the, there's no soul to it in a way right and I just I don't discount that because that's exactly what I did copy other artists I feel yeah, like me too that's part of the road as an artist you've learned something and maybe that you know will find its way into your work later on so I don't discount it but I just I have so much respect for how hard it is when you see other artists trying to do it and it's just not working you know yeah so completely well we should talk a little bit about St. Louis since you are there and for St. Louis like what I love about it is the architecture it's very green it's got that history and soul to it it's like a small city but it's kind of a big city like it's kind of hard to describe like it's um, like Pittsburgh I mean that's where I'm from it's it's uh that that feeling of like it's kind of big in a way but it's kind of really small at the same time right right and I love that it's near Chicago so you kind of have access to you know an even bigger city um when my parents, we moved back to the States, we moved to Dallas, Texas. So this was like 1984. And that just like, wasn't, I just didn't gel with that city. You know, I was going from like one of the most beautiful, we lived in the suburbs outside Sydney, but you know, one of the most beautiful cities in the world to Dallas, Texas, which at that time was very much like big money like literally the the show Dallas like the TV show so it felt very foreign and like in my head I thought oh all of America is like this so now I know like oh maybe if we had moved to Vermont that's a whole different feel you move to you know California that's different Portland like I just didn't realize that so the Midwest feels like a very good fit for me um I've had my studio either in my garage or in my, currently it's on the third floor of our house, which um, I love being near the studio. I think I'm to a place where in a couple years I could have a freestanding space and I would, I mean, I'm, 
you know, pretty diligent about going to the studio. So I know that I would actually utilize the space, but I do love at night being able to pop up there and just look at something or bring it down to the bedroom and just kind of like put it up on the mantle at the end of my bed and kind of look at it in a different light. Um, And I also love that I'm, you know, when my kids are home, I have that. I just feel like close to them. I'm not like stuck at a studio someplace. Um, And they have a really great eye. So they come in and out of my studio and give good suggestions. Like don't add anymore. Like that looks good. And I love that that's part of their growing up. That's part of their story. Um, Yeah. That, you know, I had my studio in my house. And so I love St. Louis. Like when I come you know, when I used to fly home from vacations and come home and you fly in and I'm like, I really do love this city. I mean, I've lived here more than the longest I've lived in anywhere in my life. So I came for grad school at WashU and then just stayed here. Um, but I know like, I mean, compared to like what I hear, especially like right out of grad school, I mean, you could have got the biggest studio for like nothing in downtown St. Louis, a giant loft. Um, and it's changed, but you could definitely still find a p- affordable. Yeah. You could buy a building. So, um, I know the artist Catherine Bernhardt is from St. Louis and she just moved back here and she just bought two studios near me. Um, and I'm like, there's no way you could have that space in New York. Like <laughs> yeah, no. they're giant, you yeah. know? So, well, I think uh, a big thing that's happened with this pandemic is that, you know, the the provincial question or, or, you know, being outside of cities, I think that's less of a question just because so many people are functioning remotely and doing things. And it's going to completely change the way, you know, the physical side of things are done. And, you know, like you're, you when you were mentioning the diversity of my podcast with this, it's it's not that I just wanted to only talk to New York people. And I had done some with people who came into town from out of town, but it was it was really about the face to face, which I think is is nice. Yeah, and, no, I and, got that. And yeah. it's almost and being in people's studios gives you a different vibe than just talking, you know, over right. the internet or whatever. But I I think that it it has enabled me to just and it, honestly, it's enabled other people who aren't in New York to be more willing or just say like, oh yeah, I'm com-. now a lot more mm-hmm. people are comfortable with talking over the internet mm-hmm. or mm-hmm. you know not actually being at a location i think more people are going to work from home more often hopefully the carbon footprint of the world chills out a little bit and we're not flying all over the place for no reason you know art fair here art fair there and like work flying all over and you know there's more online shows and we all want to see artwork in person but sometimes let's be honest the majority of people who know artists who aren't like, let's say in New York city or Los Angeles, like they're seeing that work online. Like my whole, you know, my formative years up until my last year of undergraduate school, everything I saw was, you know, in art forum magazine or art in Mm -hmm. America or in Mm -hmm. the library. Mm -hmm. So I never actually saw work until I went and saw Carol Dunham and Larry Pittman show and Soho, which blew my mind. Cause I was like, Mm -hmm. Oh wow. There's like stuff on the canvas. Mm -hmm. It's not flat. There's like three dimensionality to it. You know, it's like the pom pom thing. You know, and and I think a lot of people encounter work that way. So mm-hmm. I think it it's going to be a little less of an issue. I know a lot of people are moving upstate or moving, you know, outside the city, and you know, it. it I think it can be done, and and for a lot of people, it's it's a, a more healthy state of mind to not mm-hmm. just be constantly grinding all mm-hmm. the time. 
I think one thing that that I felt, you know, especially when the pandemic first happened and people were like on lockdown and literally like you had time to work remotely, but, you know, they might have been getting used to working remotely or you can't concentrate. So people were just like mindlessly scrolling. I felt like that that's where as an artist, like in St. Louis, you were being seen more. Yeah. So like um, these curators were at home and scrolling and commenting and posting and then I'm sharing what they post and there's almost like a connection and they kind of look at my work and I felt like it was a real pause in the art world where they're so busy and they don't really have time to just be scrolling Instagram but they were definitely looking, they were definitely engaging Um yeah, so hopefully some of that will carry over. I think it's definitely... I mean, that's been happening a little with social media in general. A lot more people mm-hmm. have been getting seen or opportunities through, you know, the internet. Mm-hmm. But it, it was the same way, like, when I first got to the city, I feel like there was a similarity. And it was... I remember a friend being like, I, dr- I dropped off my slides at, like, four galleries. <laughs> and they didn't even look at them. <laughs> you know, and I, and I said to him... I said, like, well, the thing is, is like, if you think about it, all those galleries represent like 20 artists or 25 artists and they're working nonstop on trying to like get them stuff and promote them and their shows right. and all that stuff. Right. And it's, it's hard for them to like, they don't even, most people don't even go out to see other people's work for fun. You know, they'll, mm-hmm. it's mm-hmm. usually like a dealer will, an artist will say to their dealer, oh, my friend is great. You got to see this work. I mean, this right. is before the internet. So the way you would see it is to go mm-hmm. see it. And, um, you got to check out her studio. It's in Brooklyn. And then they would go over and see it. But it's not like they're just going out shopping, doing right. studio visits all the time. Because if they're doing that, they're not they're not representing their art as well because they're just constantly right. looking for something else. So right. that makes it difficult. You know what I mean? And I think, you know, it, now the playing field has been, it's just like music. You know, like it it's complicated because there's so many things available to see. So mm-hmm. it's almost like just a deluge and how do you sift through it? But, you know, like you could just put your music up on Bandcamp. Someone could hear it and put it in a video or something. And next thing you know, like everyone's heard your your songs, which is cool in a way. It kind of democratizes it to a certain extent, you know. I know for me, like as an artist, I felt there's these like hot topics in the art world, like completely valid things that should be portrayed in art that maybe haven't been discussed or now they're getting a spotlight. And I feel like... Um, making work like oh I do portraits of my family I felt very kind of irrelevant (laughs) (laughs) even though everyone's making work about their own life in some way Um, and so I had kind of like embraced like well this is what I make work about and um, you know trying to see how my work at all dealt with those issues like again I'm just dealing with my family but I feel like with this whole quarantine I really started thinking about especially these verso images I really started thinking about how we attach so much to our name, like your title, like degrees, words, pronouns, and it paints a picture of who we are to other people. Um, And I've really been thinking a lot through this quarantine of like, who are we when we strip all that away? And that was kind of born from like, you know, I've had people politely reach out to me and say, oh, I can't wait till you do more diverse subjects. And I'm like, yeah, I know what you're saying, but like, it's all about my family. Um, And so that's why there's not diversity in that way. Um, And 
so, you know, I was thinking like when I was raised, it was like, oh, we're all different on the outside, but we're the same on the inside. And then I was talking to a curator recently and she goes, no, we're not the same on the inside. And I was like, oh my gosh, you're so right. Like, so looking at this other side of my embroidery, I started thinking about what does this image look like if we take race away or sexuality or your political persuasion or all these words that, you know, paint this picture of who you are. Like, what does that image look like if we try to paint it or sculpt it or and I feel like through this whole pandemic, I felt on this roller coaster of emotions where I felt like really small and also kind of scared and then feeling confident. You know, I'm, I'm riding this wave as with everyone. But on the inside, like we're kind of a mess, you know, we're trying yeah. to like make beauty out of all this stuff. So I think instead of feeling irrelevant in this quarantine, I felt like this is exactly what I need to be doing this is portraying exactly who we all are on this this side that we never see. Um, so I guess like as far as like the art world, I'm hoping that the lessons learned and these like shifts that are happening and that they're, these museums and galleries, their hands are tied, they can't do business as usual, will in the end be kind of like a time of sifting where the stuff that we don't need just falls by the wayside and the stuff that we do need get stronger um or the things that still need visibility we give those things visibility yeah well so what are you working on now and like and all and i guess what i'd like to wrap in that question too is you know when you're having a show i mean imagine that's gotta take a while because your work is time time consuming and uh, you know it's not like you just bang out a show in a few months so what right how's that process and what are you working towards now so the last show i did in new york was two years worth of work and I'm going to say by the end, I was exhausted. Like I was sick of sewing. Even like while I was making the work, I was dreaming of the things that I wanted to make when I was all done. Yeah. So when I finished, I just like told my dealer, like, I just want to experiment. I w- had wanted to try this giant embroidery. Um, and then my dealer here in St. Uh, St. Louis wanted to do a show. And his space is a beautiful space. It's not super large. It would be good for my work. But I was like, again... You know, I just want to experiment. Like, there's this thing I want to make, and it's probably going to take me a year. So they were very open to let's show some of the work from New York. Just make a couple new pieces and this giant piece to go in the show. So that was really fun, just to have a show in my own hometown and let people here see what I'm making. Um, And then I was like, okay, I'm going to get back to experimenting, and then the pandemic happened. So I'm about three-quarters of the way through another giant embroidery. Um, but in this time, I kind of shifted emotion wise and just like everyone's feeling from like quarantine freak out to black lives matter concerns. And now we've got it all tumbled together. I, the guy who you had on your podcast last, I think described it perfectly. It's like the pandemic flu plus the riots of the sixties plus the great depression. Like there's just so much all in one. Yeah. So I, I like, one day I just felt like I had to write out Black Lives Matter and stitch it. Like really an homage to Tracy Emin. Like I love her neon work since it's just in her handwriting and sometimes she scratches out words. So there was like, no, this is nothing that I invented. I just felt compelled to do it. And then I just put it on my Instagram and said like, who, if anybody wants this, let me know. 
It was and, as a patch, right? That you yeah, as a patch. Yeah. Well, they're they're actually like some of them are kind of big. I just called them a patch. Yeah. And I don't feel like I'm an activist, and you know, I'm kind of I got a lot of ideas and not so much action. I think yeah. I think I like to do stuff that isn't out there that people see. That's um, and very much on a local level. Literally, like, my neighbor next door, like, helping an elderly neighbor. You know, stuff like that that I feel like no one's going to see that. So uh, my activism isn't loud. And from that, I just, like, you know, wanted to make another one and wanted to make another one. And it was kind of a therapeutic thing to do. They're all positive messages. And I give them away for free on my Instagram. Um, It's not always, like, who's the first person. It's just, like send me a dm if you're interested and you know if you want to make change you know whatever the the saying or the word is that i've stitched so they're like quick and easy um and again they're therapeutic to make but like four months ago i never would have expected that oh you're gonna start making you know protest patches and giving them away for free and supporting black lives matter so it kind of evolved out of the moment and um you know i think just the fact that i'm mailing them to people and the shipping's free everything's free like that shocks people that they could get something for free (laughs) but it kind of gives me the feel of the 90s like i sent a lot of letters in the 90s and you would like make the card and decorate the envelope and it was special and so i love that and putting that same thing into the way these arrive to the person and everyone loves mail during quarantine like it's it's this this special thing so anyway i'm working on those but just casually and i have no shows lined up but i'm kind of relishing in i don't know what's next but i'll just slowly keep working um i've had a few more ideas um of things to experiment with but again they're in my head and i feel like maybe i'll start doing them be like that's wrong like i shouldn't do that um yeah they could be terrible ideas like i people think if you work in embroidery that you love all forms of like cross stitch and fiber and all that and i actually like do not like cross stitch so i've actually and one time i did try to sew a portrait that was cross stitch and I didn't have the patience because there was so much counting and so much changing of threads. I li- I just like more like the free form. I can't imagine. Um, <laughs> oh, it's it's since I gave it up. Like yeah, um, but I've thought about like oh, what if I do something with cross stitch that's um, I got some ink recently and like a a pen like a it has a nib on it like a calligraphy pen kind of thing. Yeah. Um, and I just started making X's in different blue, and it was so therapeutic. It had the same feel of like the rhythm of making my embroideries, and I was like, "Yeah, see, I could do this. I could like actually draw a cross stitch." So I might play around with something like that. Um, Sounds good. I feel like yeah. you have to listen to your your urges, you know, even if it seems wacky or whatever. It's just like right. you got to try it. Maybe it doesn't right. always work. But if you don't try those things out, you'll feel like uh, this emptiness or, you know, it's like an itch that you're not scratching. Yeah, it is an itch. Definitely. Yeah. So I'm just going to play around with some of that stuff. Yeah. Sounds ex- I mean, that's exciting. It's it's cool. Yeah. It's all yeah. good stuff. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, last question before I let mm-hmm. you go. You're 
I don't want to be presumptive, but uh, I'm guessing you like classical music. Okay, I knew you were going to bring up music. It is my my music taste is like so diverse that I feel a little bit embarrassed of some of my choices. Like I hear you talk about music and bands with other artists and I'm like, dang, like I want to know, I want to be able to like talk like that, but I just didn't really grow up with like music in the house. Like I wasn't influenced in any way like that. My friends weren't really into music. And I was like, if Brian asked me, what is the first concert I ever went to? I'll be, I think I was like 23 and it was seeing Sting at a Six Flags. <laughs> like that is so cringy. Wow, Sting's but I would, But I, I just, feel like, yeah, but I was 23. Like that's like pretty old to be like, yeah, I'm going to a concert. Fine. Some things, you know, some people come around the things later, you know? Yeah. So There's no I shame would, in it. I would say like my love, like the music I love the most to have on in the kitchen when I'm cooking and baking is like music from the 30s and 40s. Love it. And um, that's probably like my favorite. And I do listen to that in the studio. But then I have a love for like American folk kind of rooted music like the Avett Brothers or that Mumford and Sounds kind of music where yeah. if I need to get a lot done in the studio and not think about it and not be intimidated I'll put on Mumford and Sons to just like get me through I don't know if you've heard of the artist Pokey Lafarge he's from St. Louis I don't know Pokey well you'll have to google po- it's like one person so he's like very like um American old-timey sounding mm-hmm. uh music and then classical and then maybe some Dolly Parton mixed yeah. in there. When we talk 30s, 40s, are we talking like Boswell Sisters style stuff? But see, that's what I was like. I don't actually know who it is. It's like on Pandora, which I know my kids say like Pandora's over, like get Spotify mom. So. <laughs> so outdated. Yeah. <laughs> but it's just, I have that station and there's yeah. like repeated stuff. And it's I like just, swing and, and big band. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And that's but pop my, music in the 30s. Right, and my well. my son is has a very diverse like appreciation for music, and so sometimes I'll be like, "Hey, like, what is that that you posted?" Yeah. And one was like this. Uh, I think it might be just inter- instrumental. Was like Les Baxter, Le- like L E S Baxter. Yeah, yeah. The most awesome like instrumental, like yeah, super cool music, and then like Al Bowley is from the 30s and 40s. That kind of music. Yeah. yeah. It's my yeah, I favorite. love that stuff. That makes so. sense. I can see that in the studio. <laughs> I just, I want to say that I went to clubs and I like was really into like gritty music. And Listen, every, <laughs> every in my life, because I, I feel like I'm pretty into music, most of the time the music that I like, it, or like that it, it was never really like cool. You know what mm-hmm. I mean? Like the stuff mm-hmm. that I liked was always not cool in the scene I was in. So I've never like obsessed about like, my love of music and obsession with music in general is just born out of just a love of the music. It has, mm-hmm. It's not like a cool factor. Thing. I think sometimes it comes off as like, oh, well, it's like this quiz or something. But, yeah, <laughs> I just I love all kinds of music. I remember loving reggae and dub music in high school. And when I heard it, it was like the first time I really heard it. And like, right. I remember hiding it because I felt like the sort of like the hip hop or, or like back then the rap music people and the the like the Smiths and the Cure like those people mm-hmm. like the new wave stuff like they would have hated it and right. um, and I was like a closeted like listening to you know reggae 
And right. I, it was, you know, it's just, I just, just, I love music, like all kinds of music. So. Mm-hmm. I mean, and you know, you could have said that your diversity in music involves like all the albums of Taylor Swift. And I would have been like, <laughs> yeah, I, I get it. I totally can relate to that. <laughs> yeah. No, I'm not into Taylor Swift. Yeah, I do. I just feel like I've actually gotten more like my husband is like really into or was always really into music and like you know introduced me to yeah people I'd never heard of even like Philip Glass like when I was in college like I never heard of him then I was like what you know just all these diverse uh kinds of music so my son is kind of following in that His which is really cool yeah. so I feel like I benefit from it so I hear you know what they're listening to so right but well, they it- love like Elton John stuff from the 70s and I'm like you do like I felt like I was too close to Elton John or I was too young when he was popular it just never gelled you know yeah we all have those like Fleetwood Mac I can't stand there's very there's very little music I don't like Mm -hmm. Fleetwood Mac was too close to me like my parents listened to it and I had a bad association I just did not (laughs) like that band they were terrible and I realized they're good they're good band I just don't like it yeah, yeah, and I could see Elton John being that kind of thing. Yeah. Well, you know, and Philip Glass and, and Steve Reich and those kind of musicians, I would imagine for you, would be great in a studio because you could just get lost. Like, you know, in a, in a rhythmic working method, sometimes music mm-hmm. like that can be really nice to lose yourself in the process. I feel like I shifted from, like, I used to listen to NPR or classical music, you know, just like something without words in the studio, and now I'm... When I run out of podcast, I'm like desperate. Oh, like yeah. that to me is just like I feel like I'm learning and I'm reading at the same time that I'm making. And it's so inspiring to hear other artists' stories in the studio. So Yeah, that's yeah. a great thing about audiobooks and podcasts. For artists, mm-hmm. it's like we can't really read as much as most people can read because when we have our downtime, we're, we're looking, we're making. Right. So. right. so the audio side of that has been really like a great thing for the intellectual stimulus of artists or mm-hmm. visual makers <laughs> otherwise right. and I, I definitely think over quarantine like podcasts have just exploded like oh yeah, yeah. even when you go for a walk you just you kind of want to you know put your thoughts else like just have your thoughts in a place where you're not panicking about our world or whatever and so i think and feel like mm-hmm. you're connecting with others who are talking about those things feels nice too outside yeah. of like cable news which exactly yeah i, I, I can't I, disengaged from that about 20 years ago (laughs) and I feel like Instagram's becoming a little bit like news and Facebook in that way like where it's like stressing me out and it's making me sad and I have to literally like take it off my phone before I go into the studio because it was just it was becoming a habit to just you know okay I'll take a little break but the breaks we're accumulating too much so um it is so freeing to you know people say you literally delete it i say yes i delete it and i'm instantly like ready to start my day and then i'll put it back on at night but it's so funny uh, i did that with facebook because it was so depressing and it was mm -hmm. just like this you know social experiment of ranting and people who had deaths in the family it was just like oh like it was so depressing and and I was like, I'm, I'm done with Facebook. And mm-hmm. I was like, at least Instagram is just pictures. You know what I mean? I and then Facebook bought Instagram. And now it's like turning <coughs> into that. So, you know, look for my new TikTok handle. Where it's <laughs> dance to <painting. laughs> I'll join in That's then when funny. it's already played. And then, you know, as an older person, we'll just keep trying to catch up. 
being uh, pathetically unhip and uncool and late <laughs> to the party. It's like, is, is this where the party is, everyone? Am I, am I here? They're That's all at a funny. different house at that point. <laughs> That's really funny. Well, um, it was great to talk to you. Yeah, thank you so much for having me on. This was really fun. I look forward to seeing you. Oh, and pe- you do do, although you delete it, you do do social media so people can find your work on your yeah. website, which is yourname.com, I think. Right? It is. Uh, my website is caseyzavalia.com. And then my uh, studio account is caseyzavalia studio on Instagram. And, so, and it's not, is, is Casey an Irish name? You know what? I think it might be. It's spelled kind of Irish. I think it's C-A-Y-C-E. Yeah. Um, and my Instagram is like stuff I'm working on, but it's also like, I don't know, it just feels very narcissistic to just be me, me, me all the time. So I really love to use it as a kind of like be the art mom and share other artists from history that I love or just someone I've come across on Instagram and kind of like mix it up. So my stuff's usually in the top two scrolls, but yeah, I like to just kind of use it as a way to share other artists. Oh, I think I it's love. great. And it, I think it, mm. to be honest, I think it, um, it informs your work in a way because like, it's really cool. Like if I saw your feed and it was just all your work and your process, I would think, oh, this person's just lost in what they're doing, you know, <laughs> which there's nothing wrong with that. But, right. but you're showing so many different painters and, and different artists and, and it's really great to see that. And I mean, I have this platform where I can mm-hmm. just, you know, I talk to artists from all over the world, do different things, and I feel like I share that way. So I can it can be all me on social media. <laughs> Just kidding, right? Um, but no, I, I mean, feel- I I think it's nice to to you know sometimes people think artists are all in their own infinity loop of you know feedback of their own work and whatever, and mm-hmm. it's cool to see the other influences and, and who you're looking at and thinking about. Mm-hmm. I know even now when I give lectures on my work, I start with a blast of like. It could be like 50 images and I don't talk about it. I just go click, click, click. And it's literally like to give people, if they don't follow me on Instagram, to give them a peek into my brain of like, here's who I'm looking at. And this might help make, you know, my work make more sense because you might think I look at a ton of embroidery artists, but I don't like looking at a ton of painters. So it's like drinking from a hose, but it's like in a minute, I'm just going to give you a starting place of like the people that influence me to make the work that I do. So, yeah. That's a good technique. I want to know, are you actually, before we go, are you allowed out? Like, are you going out? Cause I know in the other podcast, you said like, you literally were like in your apartment. Yeah. We, never so leaving. we, I, I do go out now mm-hmm. responsibly with a mask and I go to yeah. the studio now. I've been painting at nighttime. Oh, so I'm okay. hanging out with my son and my family during the day and I paint during the night. So I work at home, but yeah, I'm getting out. And, uh, I also like run a soccer team with a friend and we're having like social distance practices and the kids are wearing masks, but yeah, we're getting out there, which is great, but not, I and mean, do you feel honestly, safe? Not much. Do you feel, do you feel safe yeah. going out? Okay, yeah. Because that's I'm good. very cautious and I'm okay. Not, that's like, good. Just, you know, and we, I'm yeah. not going out to eat or going to hang out with friends. I'm literally going to the studio or going to a store to pick something up, maybe right. and being safe with that or, you know, going to a soccer field with the kids. Right. So, that's, right. but that's enough yeah. right now because it right. was grim there for a while where it was mm-hmm. just me and my thoughts. <laughs> <laughs> Thank God for the podcast. <laughs> you know, yeah. I'm able to talk to people, which is nice. So yeah, but yeah, we're getting out. 
Well, good. Well, thanks so much again for asking. Thank you. This was nice. Yeah, it was great to talk to you. Thanks to Michael Levitt for the introduction to the podcast. Thank you to Evan Marion for the intro-outro music. Thank you to Casey for speaking with me. Check out her work on Instagram and her website. You can support the podcast by going to iTunes and leaving a rating and review. And you can find more images on the Instagram page at Sound and Vision Podcast. Sound and Vision is recorded, edited, and produced by myself, Brian Alfred. Many thanks for listening.